Oh, welcome back, everyone, to Digital Hammurabi. I'm Dr. Josh, and here with me, as always, is my uh, highly intelligent and beautiful-sounding wife, <laughs> Megan. Today's guest has been on our list for quite a while, and uh, we are very, very excited to have uh, with us on the line Dr. Stephen Cook, who is Professor of Old Testament Language and Literature at Virginia Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. Cook's undergraduate degree comes from Trinity College in Connecticut, and uh, later he earned his Master's of Divinity and his PhD from Yale University. So you're dealing with a serious scholar here, folks. Uh, before accepting a position at VTS in 96, Dr. Cook taught at Union Theological Seminary for four years. And among his many, many, many areas of expertise uh, are Hebrew, Aramaic, and Ugaritic languages. And he has also written rather extensively on Ezekiel, Deuteronomy, and today's topic, apocalyptic literature. Dr. Cook, it is wonderful to have you with us today. I'm delighted to, to join you. Thank you for inviting me. Of course, the pleasure is ours. Thank you for taking the time to do it. Well, would you just uh, t maybe take a couple of minutes and, um, I don't know, introduce yourself to everybody and maybe talk about... Uh, some of the work that you're maybe you're currently doing. You don't have to take long. I'm kind of putting you on the spot here with this. Sorry about that. But you just kind of introduce yourself to everybody so they can get to know you a little. No problem at all. Um, <clears throat> hi, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm uh, delighted to be here to, to talk with you. So um, essentially, I'm a Bible guy. I've loved the study of the ancient Near East and the Hebrew scriptures since I was knee high to a grasshopper. Um, I did go to Trinity, which had a wonderful religion department and uh, they had a requirement that well it wasn't really a requirement but they strongly recommended everybody do a language um, I was kind of sick from high school of doing modern languages so I thought I'd challenge myself take biblical Hebrew and <laughs> it, it turned out to be quite a challenge but my uh, my mentor there um, at Trinity was uh, very hard but just a wonderful um, inspiring guy and it just went from there I I went on to seminary and actually as of 1984 I've never left seminary I've always <laughs> in some way been a seminarian or a teaching fellow or assistant professor now I've uh, been here at Virginia Seminary the largest Anglican seminary in the world we think for almost 25 years so I've never really come down out of the ivory tower well, hopefully we'll be able to uh, translate some of that research and experience uh, out of the ivory tower uh, down today to some non-specialists. So um, I guess the the big thing that I wanted to talk to you about, um, and, and Megan seemed interested in it as well. Uh, by the way, everyone, Megan is going to be monitoring the live chat. I'm sure everyone listening is very happy for that, given that uh, I can't do two things at once. Uh, so if you do have questions, please tag her at Digital Hammurabi, and uh, we'll we'll uh, try to get some of those questions in. Dr. Cook has uh, said that he will. Sorry. No, I was just going to say if you're listening after the fact or if you're listening to this as a podcast and you would like to have your questions submitted for our next guest, you can listen live if you check our calendar, digitalhammurabi.com forward slash calendar. That has all of the dates of our scheduled live streams, so you can come into the YouTube channel watch live and submit your questions. And now everyone in the audience has melted because they've heard that voice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, it'd be sad if it weren't true, but, um, 
So what we wanted to talk about today is apocalypticism and apocalyptic literature. And this is something that I, you know, I think uh, I, I grew up, of course, with uh, hearing on the radio uh, five times a week, good evening, how are you tonight? Welcome to the Open Forum. And uh, <laughs> Dr. Cook, I don't know if you recognize my <laughs> terrible impression of Harold Camping, uh, but you know, that's a very... Um, recent example of this idea of uh, the end is coming, God is going to come and judge, everybody hold fast because deliverance is nigh. And uh, and I think it's something that's uh, on the hearts of many and certainly on their minds, um, you know, looking around even today with something like the coronavirus. Uh, is this the final judgment? Is this the, you know, God is getting ready to break through the clouds and to come and and deliver the faithful and uh, bring judgment in the apocalypse. So, um, Dr. Cook has, sure. Oh, I remember the camping stuff. I mean, um, all the stuff in California with people selling everything. He was sure he had deciphered the signs of the impending end. Mm. Uh, wasn't it 1994 at first? It was, yeah. 2011. 2011. <laughs> and then it was went from, what was it, M May? Is it March? I can't remember. It was one date, and then uh, October twenty first, um, when it when it didn't yeah. happen in March. It was, it was May twenty first, October twenty first. Yeah. yeah. So this but. is stuff that's you know it's not just in the dusty pages of history. We we deal with this um, even today. So uh, Dr. Cook has an awful lot of experience. Uh, he's written a fantastic book. Uh, was it was it two thousand three that it was published? Um, but the apocalyptic literature and. It's it's something that's written, uh, it's written on a level to somebody who has extensive experience in um, you know the biblical text, but also to someone who is a non-specialist. Uh, so if you look in the description of the video below, you'll see a link to Dr. Cook's uh, website, and on there you can find all of his publications, which are rather extensive. He's written on Ezekiel in the um, the Anchor Bible series. He's a uh, Put out a recent book, I think it was pretty recent, on Second Isaiah, um, and then in two thousand. This is great of you, Doctor Josh. <laughs> no, I, it, 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 it's fine. Tell the audience, you know, they don't have to read the books; just buy. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> give them, give them to your family and to your aunts and uncles. They don't have to read them; just buy them in, in mass. <laughs> there you go. But you'll be missing out if you don't read them. I can, I can promise you. Um, and. I wanted to focus in a little bit uh, on apocalypticism to the extent that we can kind of glean some of your knowledge on this topic, and um, and maybe if you have a unique perspective uh, that that maybe others haven't had, uh, just given your experience with it. So, could we start off, Doctor Kirk, just a little bit? What is apocalypticism? What is apocalyptic literature in general? Oh my gosh, that is <laughs> that is the question. I'll <laughs> mute. <laughs> Twenty words the, or fewer. That is the question of the hour because you go to the scholarly guild meetings and people just fight tooth and nail over what it is. And there's famous debates between folks like John Collins at at Yale and other scholars who completely disagree trying to define it and they spent years in the guild trying to work out a definition which i think we're coming to later um so part of it is just kind of um what was the old joke about uh, defining a 
pornography. Yeah. I know, you know when it I when you see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I nearly um, wrote that in an exam paper once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, essentially, it is the expectation of an imminent inbreaking of the transcendent, of the beyond, of heaven, if you will, into into our world, changing it, transforming it, moving it, uh, recapitulating or moving back through um, the chaos at the beginning of creation and re- recreating the world in a new and um, far better, far better way. So there's typically elements of um, an imminent cataclysm, but also definite elements of a uh, sort of a dualism or a binary opposition between competing forces of good and evil or clean and unclean and so forth that that need to get reconciled as uh, as the culmination of history arrives and God's God's reign begins mm. so that's kind of what's going on it's the sort of stuff that your average person on the street um, only vaguely knows uh, the the cataclysm part, <laughs> you know, the right. the idea of an asteroid hitting the Earth or of uh, the coronavirus spreading and killing everyone. That's typically the the idea, but actually, in biblical apocalyptic, it's much more hopeful and mm-hmm. joyful. Uh, so, yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, so. With all of that in mind, uh, can you give us some maybe modern examples of apocalypticism? Yes, well, they're all around us, and they take they take different forms. Some of them, like the one Dr. Josh was was mentioning, are um, kind of fringe movements, and people get uh, all worked up about them. And kind of many mainstream people, um, especially after they after the predictions fail to happen. Uh, kind of look down on them. So uh, Harold Camping, as we as we mentioned, but also in different cultures, there was, well, many people in this country may remember the Mayan uh, calendar explosion of interest in 2012. Yeah. That, uh, that contended that um, the whole of the cosmos was about to recycle and major change was coming. But... Um, Another, another, and that was uh, proved wrong. Of course, <laughs> <laughs> we are indeed all still here. Part of the problem is that uh, even though Mayan descendants themselves and archaeologists all <laughs> popped up to show that this interpretation did not correlate with the Mayan text. <laughs> no, that's the problem with being a scholar. <laughs> you know? well, what do you know? You've just spent your whole life studying this stuff. I mean, <laughs> the guy on the street street corner has a much more pure understanding of what's going on because they've broke the code. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That has eluded has eluded scholars for generations. Mm, so. I mean, the scholars didn't even realize there was a code. So, really. That's right. <laughs> just just behind on all fronts. And I, I've been thinking, I don't know if you've heard of them, uh, but there is a group called the, 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 the I don't remember, there, there's something of the Lord Rael. And uh, I think they're down in, in Mexico at the moment, but uh, they were on Facebook, you know, they seemingly fairly influential. And I engaged with them a little bit to try to, you know, understand what it was that they were saying. But essentially, uh, it's a it's a hybrid of 
um, you know, modern day Christianity and ancient Sumerian Mesopotamian religion. Um, and without, you know, going into a lot of perhaps boring detail about it, uh, essentially, um, Enlil and, um, Moses and Jesus, and now this guy who's a, a guy in the movement, they are, they are all bearing the, you know, they're, they're reincarnations essentially of, um, the Lagos. And, uh, what's interesting about it is they use Gematria quite a bit. And there's, they, they, there's, there's actually a program that was designed by a rabbi and I, a software program and I bought it, uh, which maybe that was their ultimate goal. The whole religion was, you know, trying to get you to buy this, this software program. <laughs> But, uh, you know, they run those, you know, those searches in the Hebrew text without spaces and, and you find, you know, different words going different directions. And so they, yeah, there was a a very well-known book, what, a decade ago, the Bible code. Yeah, that's right. And and in all honesty, it's hard for scholars to really react to those books Mm -hmm. because it's so different from all of our training. You know, we're trained in philology and ancient languages and exegetical methods and hermeneutics, but we're, we're not trained in, in, uh, coding and decoding. Yeah. So it really took an expert in uh, ciphering and coding to show that that this sort of technique just doesn't work. And you can do the same thing on Shakespeare and yeah. get the same kind of messages. But uh, I mean, my, scholars... Un- <laughs> I mean, my, my approach was was far more simplistic. Uh, I, I just searched for myself uh, <sighs> and, and found that actually I was also the Messiah. Okay. Uh, yeah, so... Um, <laughs> It, it it led me down. It was, a, it was quite a shock to me yeah. as his wife and mother <laughs> of his children. It's hard to live with the Messiah. <laughs> it is. Oh gosh. Um, but I think this sort of leads into problem problems. Um, at, at least in this case, with this idea of coding, it, it's something that I run into, and I know Megan runs into, and I'm absolutely sure that you run into it. Uh, it's it's seeing this sort of the mysterious, the secret. Uh, I don't want to say the Gnostic because that have you know has certain connotations, but you know that you have to be able to see beyond um, what is what is literal. And this is a problem, I think, with people when they come to apocalyptic literature, um, because it's it's trying to decipher in very literal ways, uh, very concrete ways, these images, these symbols, um, and then trying to apply them to a particular moment a particular scene and i know we're going to talk about that here in a couple of minutes but i just feel like this is something that's um uh these types of encoding things are used to um facilitate i guess that type of approach to um, a text yeah and when you think about it it actually even though those doing it probably view themselves as quite sophisticated and ingenious. It actually has the effect of sort of flattening mm. or uh, domesticating the text because it reduces the text to a simple mathematical formula mm. with one answer. And the texts are so much more vibrant and multi-layered and polyvalent. When you think about scriptural texts in particular, they spoke to an ancient audience but they continued to speak to church and synagogue as church and synagogue developed and grew. And they continued to be of immense influence and power to many of us today. So to reduce them in any way to simply a, uh, a puzzle to be decoded is just so unfair to the text. So, so that's one of my main problems with the decoding approach. 
Yeah, you said in your uh, in your book on page sixty three, and I, I typed this quote out because I thought it was actually particularly meaningful, and it seems appropriate here. Literalism typically means an uncritical submission to the biblical text, which may deaden the imagination and perpetuate outmoded, injurious aspects of the text's original idiom. It generally entails a flat-footed reading, which views apocalyptic literature in one-dimensional terms. A search for the Bible's literal sense is different. It sees apocalyptic texts as symbolically rich, inspired literature that invigorates the imagination offering readers new orientation and resolve about the life of faith. And uh, I'd like you to unpack that a little bit, and we can do it later if it, if it fits better later. But I, I just think this, this reading it, the difference between literalism and you know, what you're referring to as the, the literal sense, I think is actually pretty important to the thesis of your book. Yeah, we could do a whole uh, <laughs> a whole nother radio show on that topic because it's, it's really interesting. But um, I, I will say at least this much at, at this point, that the literature, the apocalyptic literature to me is so colorful and vibrant. And it's not all crazy groups like the Branch Davidians mm-hmm. and David Koresh or that group in Asia that tried to bomb the sub, you know, they gassed the subways with sarin gas. Do you, do you remember that apocalyptic uh, um, yeah. <laughs> group? That was? But there's also, you know, there's also positive uses of this. I'm thinking most recently, if any of you live in this area that we uh, that we all do in the D.C. Capital Beltway area, there's this amazing tapestry that fills an entire room. It was on display at, I think, Canterbury Cathedral and around the world. Now it's in the uh, on display in the Bible Museum, and it's just uh, attracted swarms of people. Just be, you can Google it on YouTube. Uh, it, it has three different light phases, natural light. Um, then it uh, has the glow in the dark uh, and uh, phosphorescence. And then in between, it has the vol- ultraviolet light phase. So it, uh, it's actually sort of a living artwork that sparks the imagination, gets people to think out of the box, mm. um, beyond the workaday, the quotidian, the uh, banal. And that's often what apocalyptic has done in a positive way. It's helped people open their eyes and see that there's more to existence than just the everyday uh, quotidian world. Hmm. Well, that, I, so maybe what we can do, because I feel like that's taking us where we want to go, but I, what I don't want to do is leave anybody behind, because I, I, I want all of us to get where uh, I think you're going. So let's back up if we can for just a second to make sure everybody's on the the, the same page. Um, I'm going to read, if you don't mind, Dr. Cook, um, the Semea 14 conference that I know that you're incredibly familiar with. Uh, there, there was sort of a group definition that everybody agreed upon. Um, and I'd like to read that for um, just so we can, un- you can unpack it a little bit for us, if that's okay. Yeah. So, uh, an apocalypse is defined as, quote, a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality which is both temporal, insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation, and spatial, insofar as it involves another supernatural world. So could you unpack that just a little bit for us? What are the key things that we would want to take away from that? 
Um, and how does that help us at least get closer to understanding what are and are not apocalyptic texts? Right. So this, I'm really glad that you quoted uh, this because this definition, it took, um, you know, a long time for scholars to work out and they had everybody uh, and their brother and sister work, <laughs> working on this <laughs> at the Society of Biblical Literature. And there's both um, conservative scholars and liberal scholars working on it. Uh, and it's a, it's a fairly good definition as it, as it goes and almost every book on apocalyptic cites it, but there are some some issues. As a matter of fact, I, I was giving a public talk with Ben Witherington from Asbury mm. on um, apocalyptic recently, and he cited this definition. He was, uh, if anyone that reads evangelical New Testament scholarship, they probably know Ben Witherington, but he was quoting this this very definition um, as sort of gospel, mm -hmm. <laughs> sort of gospel truth. It's so it's so widely widely accepted. This this talk, by the way, this is a tangent, but um, we were talking about apocalyptic, and we had Ben Witherington on one side, who's a Wesleyan, and then Methodist, and then on the other side, we had two scholars, uh, including Denise Dombrowski-Hopkins, an Old Testament Hebrew Bible scholar from Wesley, who are on the more, uh, Wesley Seminary, on the more radical uh, end of uh, theology, and it was quite explosive. I mean, they were up on stage, <laughs> kind of, the two spectrums of Methodism, battling it out, wow. and I was trying to mediate <laughs> between the two. Between the two, I mean, apocalyptic can can really cause some fights and some uh, disagreements. But um, what I will say about the definition that you quoted is that it, it's very helpful in a number of ways. It captures the idea of a of a of a narrative framework, so that history is viewed not just in a sort of timeless way, but taken seriously. Um, it talks about an, a mediation. That's that's often the case because human beings have such a hard time grasping and or imagining the transcendent sphere, the the otherness of heaven, that mediation is is required. Um, transcendent reality, that speaks to the dualism that I mentioned. There's the earthly and the heavenly, the evil and the good, the clean and the unclean, and so forth. Uh, life versus death, all of those dualisms. Um, and then eschatological salvation with uh, the inbreaking of a supernatural world. So that's also a big deal. We talked about how apocalyptic typically understands a history unable to achieve within itself any sort of final uh, salvation, peace, shalom. And so the inbreaking of, of another reality required to, to set things right. So all of that works. The problem is that although this definition captures very well the, the sort of full-blown mainstream apocalyptic texts such as Daniel and Revelation and Enoch and so forth that arose in the Greco-Roman era, it doesn't do very, doesn't uh, work very well for capturing, let's say, figures like uh, John the Baptist or, or Jesus or mm -hmm. Paul, who also seem to have had a very apocalyptic message which with many of these features, but you couldn't say, you know, for example, neither John the Baptist nor Jesus uh, seem to have written a narrative <laughs> mm. that we can find anywhere, um, nor do we see in them a, uh, an otherworldly mediator, mediating angel figure. Mm. So if you press this 
definition too far. It, it leaves out a lot. And some people would just come along and say, well, they should be left out. John the Baptist, Paul, and Jesus weren't really apocalyptic. So that's where, that's where the scholarly arguments start and sure. people take sides and fight. <clears throat> I think this sort of thing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching through uh, Hebrew now on the YouTube channel and we just finished a lesson on, um, you know, I just did the lesson on nouns and plurals and, and, you know, just, just like anybody that learns any language, you, you say, right, here's generally what works, right? Generally you're going to see in a masculine plural em, um, in yeah. a feminine plural oat, but uh, you know, and I, I kind of look at definitions like this in, in a similar way. Um, it's a good swipe. It's going to cover a lot. Um, you know, we have to be able to have some nuance that we can, right. we can, when we apply it and you can't, it's, it's, it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. So we can't, right. um, enforce it, uh, upon text. So in, in light of that, then just so that, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of uh, Daniel revelation book of Enoch, but could you just kind of go through and you don't have to be exhaustive in any way, but you know, maybe, in, in, a, in a broad sense, what are the biblical and the extra-biblical apocalyptic texts, just so we can all kind of know uh, what we're dealing with? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there is sort of a uh, scholarly agreement on sort of the major apocalypses that arose, say, in the last two centuries BCE and the first two centuries CE. The only two that are really within the Protestant canon would be Daniel in the Hebrew Bible and uh, Revelation in the, in the New Testament. And then there's a bunch of extra-biblical ones, um, the Book of the Watchers, the, the whole corpus of the Ethiopian Book of Enoch, uh, the Esdras material, but also others that, uh, you know, the Shepherd of Hermas mm -hmm. is sometimes included, sometimes not because it doesn't quite fit all of the all of the definitions um i won't i won't give you the whole list but with within the biblical text itself then there are these other i think a lot of other things that fall into the category of apocalyptic literature even though they don't meet the they don't meet the formal definition of an apocalypse per se mm -hmm. so then we begin to argue about, well, there's the genre apocalypse, but then there's a broader sort of macro genre that includes apocalyptic thinking, apocalyptic eschatology, mm. um, that maybe uh, the group, the social dimension is important too, because we, we once you acknowledge, and this has been a problem with this definition as well, once you acknowledge cross-culturally that we can begin as social scientists to describe the parameters of the sorts of groups that have these types of literatures, then we can begin to see those types of groups behind writings in the Old and New Testament. We can begin to say, okay, um, you know, John the Baptist had affinities with the Dead Sea Scroll Qumran community, and there was an apocalyptic group, so scientists call it a millennial group, that supported this type of um, understanding and worldview, sheltering cosmic canopy. Uh, by the same token, um, a group like uh, an early prophet like Joel would have had a community of fellow priests within the Jerusalem temple 
that supported his apocalyptic thinking, um, a millennial, a millennial support group. <laughs> so if you, if you think that way and include those types of groups, then the Bible would have much more apocalyptic. It would have the book of Joel, mm-hmm. parts of Isaiah, parts of Zechariah, maybe the whole book of Zechariah, Malachi, Haggai to some extent. And in the New Testament, much of what uh, Jesus proclaimed, but also definitely um, letters of Paul, particularly things like uh, Thessalonians, where he's he's talking about the resurrection and how it's coming very quickly and comforting people in the church at Thessalonica that even though family members have died, church members have died, that there'll be this great reunion. And here you get controversial ideas like rapture coming in that is, you know, uh, hit the world by storm and are still very popular, mm-hmm. thinking of the Left Behind series, mm-hmm. uh, sort of entered mainstream American culture. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think that, so that everybody's kind of clear, um, when you talk about Jesus being an apocalypticist, um, could you maybe give an example, and you started to talk about it a little bit with Paul, you know, like First Thessalonians 4, but um, what what sorts of things sort of tip you off, particularly about Jesus, that you would say um, he's an apocalyptic preacher or apocalyptic teacher. Um, what leads right. you down that road? So this is another hot button, <laughs> hot button topic. <laughs> we, should, we should do another podcast on this because it really is quite a debate. And my seminarians here at Virginia Seminary are, are quite divided about it and, and sometimes quite shocked to even begin a discussion about it. And I think within the scholarly guild, I remember having a discussion with Marcus Borg when he was still alive. He he did not believe Jesus was an apocalyptic Mm. prophet. So the Jesus movement folks, um, the the Jesus seminar folks, Mm -hmm. tended to present a picture of Jesus that was mostly like a like a seminary professor, very sagacious, very, mm-hmm. very wise, a very wise teacher. But then a more, I think a more traditional approach is understood Jesus is really announcing the reign of God mm-hmm. and um, announcing that many things would be upset and overturned. And because of that provoked a great uh, deal of opposition because people in our world really are often quite happy to to maintain the status quo, especially <laughs> if you've got some power and riches and, you know, yeah. so Jesus coming was great news. If you realize, Oh boy, I, I, I need to, to be a much better human being and much, you know, I would love to much better reflect the image of God. But, um, if you are a, uh, sort of a, a, a rich land grabber or a silo builder hoarding up great uh, treasures and wealth and quite happy to be oppressing the poor, then the presence of a Messiah is, <laughs> is actually not very good news. Yeah. That, that eruption from heaven is not going to be as good for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, and, uh, and this was known in the Hebrew Bible as well. The manual prophecies in mm-hmm. Isaiah are good examples. God with us is perhaps good news for some, but also it can mean, you know, Isaiah talked about, God with us, meaning the Assyrians flooding into the land and the waters of chaos rising up to the neck and barely people barely being able to escape with their lives. So that's what we, what we mean when we talk about Jesus as bearing an apocalyptic message or having an, a, 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 being an apocalyptic prophet. 
and it's it's easy to miss because Jesus often spoke in parables mm. and told stories, and they're so easy to psychologize those or to sort of um, make them about internal conflict rather than society and history. So when Jesus talks about the foolish man building house on the sand and the wise person building house on the rock and the floods <laughs> smashing right. the, the house on the sand, people tend to think, well, that's a story about an individual's life and fate. But if you think about it in terms of what's happening in the world and a great flood of chaos coming in and overturning everything, and some people make it through and others, others lifestyles will not allow uh, any sort of moving through the recapitulation, then you, you begin to see, oh, okay, these parables and stories and illustrations can have a much different reading than you typically hear from the pulpit. Yeah. I always took that one as, you know, good construction practices, but, you know, it's probably not looking deep enough. <laughs> That's a flat-footed reading. Yes, now. indeed. Yes, indeed. That is literalism. Oh, gosh. Well, let me, so, so let me, um, if, if I could, because there are two places then I want to go. Um, one is to kind of talk about maybe what is more, not, maybe not more agreed upon, but maybe so, you know, looking at something like the book of Daniel, that when you think about, you know, the Hebrew Bible and an apocalyptic text, Daniel's sort of the one that comes up. But then I'd like to, as you mentioned, some of the earlier, um, the earlier text, the prophetic texts and the apocalyptic, at least hints that we get at them. I, if, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that. So um, if I could, let's start with Daniel. I want to read um, a quote again from your book on page 124. You said, the earlier portions of the Daniel collection, the tales of suspense and intrigue at court in Daniel 1 through 6, come from later Persian and early Hellenistic times. Perhaps these tales were assembled between 350 and 200 BCE. It is difficult to be more precise than that. What is clear is that part of Daniel originated long after the period it portrays. So you may think, uh, is that, uh, why in the world uh, would I possibly pick that um, to read? And for our audience, I, I just recently did a very seemingly very long, it seemed very long for me, series <laughs> on the dating of the book of Daniel. Mm. Um, and I think people had this idea that I'm I'm anti Bible, I'm I'm anti God, um, and and that's why I'm I'm you know writing something like. Uh, a book, I mean, uh, or uh, doing videos on the late dating of Daniel. Um, and that's certainly not the case here. Um, I think in order to understand uh, the correct context, uh, social setting of an apocalyptic text, we, we really do have to start with, you know, when the book was assembled, when the book was put together. So would you mind, um, you you know, talking about this, and then you go on to talk about the uh, the setting of the later visions. Could you maybe talk a bit about the time of composition and why it is significant for a proper understanding of the text? Yeah. So Daniel is one of the hotbed controversial books. I'm not surprised that you ran into trouble talking about <laughs> it. It's one of the flashpoints with the rise of modernist interpretation. Another one besides Daniel, was whether Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Mm -hmm. uh, another big flashpoint was whether David wrote the, King David wrote the Psalms. So those are all hot-button topics. And uh, even today in my own seminary classes, and this is a mainstream Episcopal seminary, there's still flashpoints mm -hmm. for 
for folks. And the book of Isaiah as well. Yes. The book of Isaiah is the third major one, perhaps the most, uh, (laughs) you know, was there one Isaiah behind the book or, or was there three or more? (laughs) One Isaiah, two Isaiahs, three Isaiahs, four. (laughs) (laughs) The problem is once you start uh, multiplying the authors, there's hardly any end to it. Mm. My approach in each of these cases is typically sort of an Anglican, you'll appreciate this, Megan, sort of <laughs> sort of an Anglican um, middle way. Mm-hmm. I try to see the truth on both sides and to um, not necessarily get into the debate itself, but to try to see how we can read this literature with, uh, with respect for what it's doing. So with the book of Daniel, I would have to agree with you, Josh, that... Mm-hmm. If we know from studying apocalyptic groups that these groups expect the end to be imminent, in other words, that it's coming soon and there has to be a fervor and an energy and an adrenaline that comes with, with uh, the knowledge that the inbreaking of God's reign could come at any time, then the book of Daniel would have to be written not... Um, not as a vision of what was centuries away, and that wouldn't really have any relevance for its uh, for folks in uh, exile at the historical Daniel's time. It would have to have been a collection of stories that was that came together in writing at a later time, mm-hmm. closer to the expected end. But on the other hand, you know, pursuing this middle way, I'd also want to say I wouldn't want to go to the extreme of say the ancient. Uh, anti-Christian Porphyry, who, who argued that the book was just a fraud. Mm. It was just a prophecy written after the fact to make it seem valid, and that Daniel is only about that era in the Greco-Roman times and has no prophetic valence towards the future. So you can see I, I want my cake <laughs> and I want to eat it too. <laughs> well, you had a you had a fantastic, and again, uh, you know, Doctor Cook, I, I I feel like it's 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 nice that I can have someone on that um, I don't necessarily you know, we we don't always have to agree on on every aspect. But I thought you had a, a fantastic um, analogy that you drew in the book to uh, apocalyptic um, in breakings being akin to someone driving up a mountain uh, or, or going up, I think going up or driving up. And mm. at points you, the car begins to edge over toward, you know, the cliff as it's driving up and you, you, you get this vision of the chasm below which you equate with, you know, the, the apocalypse. Right. Um, yeah. and then, and then the car writes itself and comes back and it, it doesn't actually happen. Um, because the car doesn't go off and that's how you liken, uh, if, if I'm reading you correctly, um, you know, things like the book of Daniel, it's, 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 you know, the, the vision starts to, or the, the apocalypse starts to peek through, you come close to the edge of the cliff, but then things get righted and it doesn't actually happen. And that doesn't, you know, in your view, and again, please, please correct me if I'm, if I'm off on this in your view, that doesn't mean that, uh, as you say, Porphyry's position of, you know, Daniel's just a fraud, um, that that's not, that's not correct. Um, uh, but that, uh, there was a, there was a peak if for lack of a better term that I can think of here, uh, of the, of the apocalypse coming in and then taking back, and this would account for, this would be a, a good understanding of, 
you know, seeing things like even in Jesus' day, this generation shall not pass, or Paul, you know, saying, we who are alive and remain, those sorts of things. Um, these these apocalyptic glances or glim- glances, glimpses that we get. Uh, could you maybe talk about that? Correct me uh, no. if I've gone astray. I think you've nailed it. <laughs> I think you've nailed it right on the uh, on the head. A good example of sort of a microcosm of the apocalypse that uh, listeners will probably be familiar with is the transfiguration mm. in the Gospels, where Jesus suddenly um, shines with a transcendent luminosity, and Elijah appears as well as Moses. Elijah being the one who was taken up to heaven bodily, so. Um, a foretaste of the resurrection, if if you will. So we get this uh, transfiguration that momentarily sort of um, in, in, a, in a microcosm, sort of a, a proto-Christos way, uh, it represents the the apocalypse. But then you come down off the mountain back into the banal workaday quotidian mm-hmm. world, and you realize no the the end has not yet come, but you've had a little taste of it. Mm. And I think that's, yeah. So let me, let me ask you a, a silly question, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's not silly perhaps to some listening. Um, and I don't want to get, you know, too much into your, your personal, uh, religious belief here, but I mean, do you find that viewing the book of Daniel as, you know, having been compiled, um, in, you know, the, you know, uh, let's say final compilation in the second century. Do you find that that makes it difficult um, or impossible for you to be a Christian? So, again, we should do another show on this because <laughs> I think this is, this is kind of a big challenge now, nowadays. And I think most Americans when they want to learn about the Bible, we're so used to turning on the TV and watching mm. the History Channel or the Archaeology Channel and so on. And we create, we sort of um, understand that that the Bible can be read on a very flat, literal way and that it should correlate with history um, as archaeology can dig it up and so on. But that's, you know, that gets into your question earlier. What What is really the literal... Mm the literary sense. And we were joking about, um, you know, is the parable about building a house on the sand uh, trying to teach us how to do good architecture and good construction work? Uh, In the history of synagogue and church, the literal sense never meant getting a trowel and a patish and going over to to Israel-Palestine and digging things up and seeing if there was actually a house being built on sand during Jesus's lifetime, all of the great figures understood that the literal sense included um, iconography, archetypal images of the beyond, um, the idea that a, a, a cherub statue in the temple wasn't just a statue, but was a portal or icon to a larger reality. None of that is a flat-footed, literal pedestrian reading that an archaeologist can go and dig up. So I think we really need to critique modernism at this point and critique types of readings of the scripture that go back to Spinoza that are simply another version of this decoding technique that the Bible is a mathematical uh, uh, 
a, math, a mathematical puzzle or equation that needs to be solved. Mm-hmm. We've just gotten, and it's not just <laughs> it's not just a few of us. The whole culture, I think, is still living through all of the problems of Enlightenment, Spinoza, um, the rise of modernism. It's a huge it's a huge issue to try to think of new ways to read. So, yeah, I think in order to maintain faith in a in a in a world that's now disenchanted mm. if you will a disenchanted world um a secular world as taylor describes it we've got to sort of recapture a new way of reading scripture mm. yeah i i think nuance is something that and I, I, I use that term a lot, but <clears throat> I feel like nuance is often lost in a lot of these texts. Um, and of course, you know, you've you've written extensively on Ezekiel. Um, and I think that one of the places that, and we don't have to get into this, but it just what came to mind, you know, reading Ezekiel 26 and then reading Ezekiel 29 and seeing what happened with Tyre. Um, mm, and and uh-huh. and. and that could be very problematic, I think, in mm-hmm. a way that's unnecessary for the Christian faith. Um, and of course, there are, you know there are positions that people take that sort of um, you know try to make sense of. I think it's Robert Chisholm um, makes the argument that you know you have contingent prophecy, uh, and so you know that's what's happened somehow. The the King of Tyre has has repented, and that's why um, Nebuchadnezzar was you know rebuffed. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I think that's, that's a step in the right direction, in, in my opinion, trying to, trying to let the text say what it says. Um, right. but, but, but I mean, just to, just to help your readers out, what, what he's talking about is that Ezekiel actually includes a prophecy against Tyre. And then a few chapters later, God essentially emits in a new prophecy that the old one didn't come true and that God's going to do something different. <laughs> and so, um, for some, that's just whoa! What yeah. can God be wrong? And but then, I think got to say, well, also whoa! Ezekiel's being completely honest. Yeah, this why leave not, that one in there? <laughs> why, why did you? Leave Don't you have an eraser? <laughs> <laughs> so, I remember Moshe Greenberg, the famous mm-hmm. Jewish scholar of Ezekiel, talking about this, and it's like, yeah, this is it. As problematic and, and as strange as this is, it really says something about Ezekiel's own honesty mm-hmm. and about the the authority of these words, even even almost within Ezekiel's lifetime. Mm. That um, these, if God said something, even if it doesn't come true, that doesn't mean you throw it out. Yeah. You wrestle with it, you deal with it, you try to figure out what's going on. Yeah, I, I think having that ability you know that that ability to have nuance to allow for nuance um, is just so critical. Whatever way that you come to the text, you know when when we read through, uh, you know Megan uh, has written a, a bunch for a dissertation on Mesopotamian royal inscriptions from the, you know the um, the third and early second millennia, and mm. you know allowing for nuance there. Like if we yeah, trying to understand what is it that, of course, Sennacher would be much later, but what, you know, what is it that um, Shulgi is talking about uh, in these in these royal inscriptions? What is it that Naram Suen is doing? 
you know, if we if we try to read these things, you know, 14 battles in one day and they made him God, you know, what if if you read that, as you say, flat footed, you know, on a on a literalist sense, then it becomes problematic because, well, wait a minute, you know, is that is that really what happened? Did the people right. really, you know, clamor for the gods to to deify him? No, I mean, you know, probably, right. probably not. Um, however, there's there's rationale behind it, and if you allow for the nuance of that rationale, um, I th- I think you can get a lot more out of the text, even if you don't hold to, you know, as as I don't hold to Mesopotamian religion being, um, you know, something that I would I would subscribe to. Uh, I still think that nuance is incredibly important. I don't think you can get to the text to to the meaning of the text. Uh, or to its usage without that without that nuance. So now this is good. I think that that goes back to to what Doctor Cook was saying earlier, in that um, you lose so much by a literal, like a flat reading of of the text and of the Hebrew Bible. There's a lot more. Um, it's a lot more interesting if you allow for uh, creativity and for imagination to come through into it. Rather than just assessing mm. whether something is is historically true or not, right. Well, let me ask you this, and I I know we're we're coming up on an hour, but I I, I did want to ask you one more question because I find it I find it so fascinating, um, and I think the listeners will as well. Um, sorry, before you ask that question, I'm just going to uh, remind people, if you're watching live or listening live, if you have a question for Dr. P- uh, Dr. Cook, please put it in the side chat and tag me at Digital Hammurabi. Uh, we're going to be asking those questions um, in a couple of minutes. And if you are listening after the fact and would like to bring questions for our next live stream guest, you can uh, check the schedule. It's digitalhammurabi.com forward slash calendar. So let me ask you this, um, you know, we, when reading through the book and by, by the way, just for everybody listening, I, I really do, uh, this isn't just some sort of a shameless plug for Dr. Cook. I really do recommend that you pick up the apocalyptic literature. Um, it's a, it is a 2003, yep. 2003 Abington press publication. It's in the, um, interpreting biblical text series, but he goes through, um, the apocalyptic texts that are in the Bible. So he, he, he has a discussion about early apocalyptic texts. Chapter six is about the book of Daniel. Um, seven is apocalypticism and uh, Jesus and, uh, and so on. So a book of revelation is dealt with. It's, 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 it's excellent. It really, really is um, to kind of go through and get a, a, a nuanced approach. But if we could for a second, um, talk about these earliest biblical examples of apocalyptic literature or this, this proto-apocalyptic that's in the prophets. So um, you discuss the different types of priests in the Hebrew Bible and the significance of distinguishing them. And I thought that was actually really important and something that I didn't think of. Um, can you explain the different types of priests? And again, just briefly, uh, but also why it's important to identify them and and keep them in mind when reading through this this early these early examples in the prophets. Mm. Well, let me just first say thank you so much for your kind words about my book. I, I I really deeply appreciate it. So it's interesting if you go back in the history of scholarship, there's actually quite a lot of heated argument 
over the relationship of, of priesthood to apocalyptic uh, for a long time. And we're, we're going back to the rise of modernism and modern historical critical scholarship. Big names like Julius Fellhausen mm-hmm. and Max Weber really made a sort of a typological distinction between priests on the one hand and apocalyptic visionaries on the other. They pushed the apocalyptic visionaries out to the periphery of society, like those crazy uh, <laughs> folks who gasped the subway <laughs> or um, sold all their belongings and waited for the end, and then their children can't go to college. Right. <laughs> or uh, the um, And the folks who are priests, and so this was at the time of um, sort of the height of German Lutheranism and so forth. There was kind of an anti-Catholic, anti-priest bias. Priests were typically understood to have a realized eschatology, to want to maintain the status quo, to want to uh, solidify their pra- their places mm-hmm. in power. So this is going way back to when I was, like Megan, writing a, a dissertation. I thought, you know, this this works in some ways, but uh, also doesn't work in a lot of other ways. There's In real life, there isn't this priest-prophet dichotomy. I, I know priests in the Episcopal Church who love <laughs> speaking prophetically and uh, want to overturn the status quo and so forth. So it was fun for me uh, 30 years ago when I was a young, a young kiddo like you and Megan. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to try to to disabuse scholars of that opinion. And part of that involved distinguishing different types of priests and showing how all of them in their own way could be apocalyptic visionaries. Ezekiel is a Zadokite priest from the center of society, and he did the Gog of Magog Mm -hmm. material. Isaiah is an Aaronid priest, sort of one tier down, but still recognized as able to sacrifice by almost everybody. And we talked about the last portions of Isaiah and also some of those prophecies of resurrection in Isaiah as being apocalyptic. Um, also, Isaiah has the big thing about um, the uh, the feast on, on God's mountain when the veil of death is pulled away, highly apocalyptic mm-hmm. stuff. And and elsewhere in Isaiah, this, these uh, prophecies of God's dew being a radiant dew, and the earth or the underworld will give birth to those long dead spirits. So really powerful stuff. Um, and folks like John Levinson at Harvard have pointed out that because of texts like these in Isaiah, it's very difficult for people to argue that there's no resurrection in the uh, in the Hebrew Bible, and resurrection, of course, is highly apocalyptic notion. Mm. And then um, you have again the third type of priest would be the Levite, Levitical priests, and uh, they were uh, oftentimes in Israel's history they they had less power, but they also were able to produce apocalyptic writings. A big example of that is Malachi. Mm who talks about John the Baptist, well, not John the Baptist, but <laughs> talks about Elijah, Elijah coming back bodily at, uh, as a forerunner of the new age, the, uh, the new millennium. If, if someone were interested in getting, um, you know, like a, I always try to recommend easy to use, easy to understand resources uh, to try to get 
maybe a little more in depth uh, into the different types of priests and and uh, you know understanding maybe the, the history when we we think about how the biblical text was put together, how it might affect that. Uh, do you have something that you would recommend, um, maybe at an introductory level? I can link it uh, in the description of the video. If you think. your questions are so good, we, the, the 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 market and <laughs> so desperately needs a book like that. Mm. Maybe, maybe you and I can get together and write it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be more you writing it, but <laughs> I don't remember. Do you discuss it in your so? Um, again, shameless plug, but the uh, in the anchor uh, Yale Bible series, uh, right? Doctor Cook wrote uh, Ezekiel thirty-eight to forty-eight, and I. Uh, I remember consuming it when I first got it. Do you discuss, I don't remember though, do you discuss um, the different types of priests? Well, so we should have another one of these live streams about (laughs) Ezekiel because it's just, my goodness, that book is so interesting with the flying wheels and the bones coming alive in the valley. And um, So I had to discuss the priesthood somewhat. Because there's a big debate in scholarship in the guild. People get really hot under the collar now about topics like whether Ezekiel was a Zadokite mm. priest or not, whether the Zadokites were a late invention. Um, there's whole books, ri- dissertations written on missing priests, that this whole idea of a Zadokite priesthood is kind of a late product of Hellenistic imagination. And so I did have to spend quite a while in the book, um, because I think it is important uh, for a number of reasons, and I don't want to bore your readers, but if you, if Ezekiel is a Zadokite priest, that would explain why some there's so many connections with Leviticus and the so-called holiness school mm-hmm. theology of the Pentateuch. All sorts of things come together in an amazing way once you begin dividing up these priests. But I should also say that I have to constantly fight about this with my fellow scholars <laughs> who, think I'm, who think I'm just going out on a limb making these kinds of arguments. And I, but I, and I say, I've made it so clear in my book. It's, so, it's, it's such a good argument. Why, why right. can't you just accept what I'm saying? Just let me have this one. Right, right. <laughs> it's, but no. So... That's excellent. I, I know when I when I wrote my dissertation, um, I remember making you know drawing some conclusions, and I, I, I guess I I always assume that I'm wrong uh, when I when I write things, and maybe that makes me a better better scholar because I don't talk as much. I, I'm not sure, but I I always assume that I'm wrong when I write things. So I, I use the word seems, it appears, sure. perhaps. Yes. Uh, and it's, I feel like it's throughout my dissertation, those words, because I, I talk about... Um, well, that's scholarly ease. But I mean, I have to tell you something funny. I, I've been in numerous psychotherapy sessions where the, <laughs> the therapist says, why do you keep using perhaps and hedging everything <laughs> when you're trying to get along with your wife? And I, you don't understand. <laughs> Scholars always, no, right. always talk. <laughs> we have our advisors' heads, you know, hovering behind we our... We never children. say anything definitively because we know someone's going to come along and critique us. Yep. <laughs> Unless they can prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Oh, and this is history, so it's I so can't. True. So I'm going to hedge it. Oh, gosh. Well, I, I'm going to stop asking questions because I've had my turn. <laughs> and uh, Megan, please, if there are questions from the audience and, and Dr. Cook, if you're um, excited to answer them, uh, I think this will be fun. So we actually only have two. Um, 
the audience has been surprisingly quiet today. Um, Captivated is probably well, the word. They've been very interested. Um, and Dr. Cook, we've had several people say that you should definitely come back. Um, so Ooh, I'm afraid awesome. you're now legally obligated. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we didn't mention this before, but you are legally obligated to come back and talk to us about Ezekiel. Uh, <laughs> so for the first question is, um, I think, a little tongue-in-cheek given the current situation in the world. Uh, will the four horsemen have masks on when they arrive? <laughs> I, I guess so. I think but, if they um, are the, smart, you know, then yes. If there's enough, I think yeah. uh, Amazon <laughs> yeah. has sold out. I, I understand the best way to make them at home is using vacuum cleaner bags because the virus particles are so small they they can slip through a handkerchief. So interesting. <laughs> yeah. So there you have it, people. If you need to make your own bags. Uh, own bags, own masks, use vacuum cleaner bags. And if the four horsemen are listening and they can't find someone on Amazon, that's how you do it. They can make their own. Um, and the last question, uh, what modalities may a layman use to introduce nuance to their reading of ancient texts in general and apocalyptic literature specifically? Mm, that's a wonderful question. And you two may have some really good answers to that as well. I think one thing that I do in class that people sort of like is I begin to talk about, you know, much of prophecy, certainly much of Isaiah, for example, is, is beautiful poetry. And when people hear poems, I think they're more, when they understand that they're hearing a poem, which we don't often because biblical poetry doesn't have the sort of rhyme and um, meter that we're used to. But when we realize it's poetry and we start to, slow down and read the text a lot more carefully than we typically do in a sermon or in a Bible study, but really spend our time looking at the parallelism and choice of words. Then people start to realize, oh, this is, this is a poem. It's rich. It's deep. It's vibrant. It's multi-layered. So I typically try to push students to do more with art showing um, images and great artworks, do more with music, how different uh, biblical texts have been set to, to music, do more with a real discussion of the poetic beauty. And uh, I, I personally would love to see a lot more of that in the pulpit and in biblical studies and in public presentations, because it would help people to realize that the issue of genre is important here. Bible is not simply um, straight history or straight reporting, but often has a very great variety of, of uh, different genres, some of which rely quite heavily on artistry. We've sort of embraced that to an extent here at Digital Hammurabi. We have a um, an artistic representation of the Gilgamesh story mm. in a rap. <laughs> <laughs> I, I shouldn't say that through so much laughter because I mean it really is a tremendous work of art wouldn't you say Megan I, I, I definitely definitely would <laughs> she wouldn't say that oh I have to, on good authority that it is, it is best sung in a pub while drinking um, <laughs> we, we learned 
shortly after Josh released it, actually, that um, there's a group of archaeology students <laughs> in the UK who sing it when they go to the pub, which oh, I think wow. is possibly the greatest compliment we could ever receive. If you um, if you haven't heard it, I mean, I now, Doctor, I imagine you watch MTV, you know, or VH1. I don't even know if those are channels still, but. You know, I'm, I'm sure that you've heard it on the radio many, many times, uh, which okay. is which is probably, w- w- you know, you, you heard my voice and you thought, my head sounds so familiar. I wonder if he's that Gilgamesh rap guy. But uh, if you haven't by chance uh, heard it, if you if you Google or if you uh, if you YouTube Gilgamesh rap, I suspect um, it will come up. You'll see my goofy looking face. Uh, I'll definitely share it with my with my seminarians. Absolutely, it's almost like that. Um, uh, there was a guy out at Trinity uh, in Chicago that did Modern Major General. Uh yeah, he redid a Modern Major General. Uh, yeah, I've seen that. That's, That's wonderful. It's fantastic. Yeah, that was classic. That was classic. A biblical philologist. That was that's what it was, a biblical follow. And you've seen the music video by They They Might Be Giants about uh, Hammurabi, yeah. Astro Banner. <laughs> yeah, that one I think probably got a few more hits than uh, than mine did. But <laughs> Maybe, uh, maybe. A I'm gaining, I would say. <laughs> I would not say that. Um, I just quickly want to add to, to Dr. Cook's um, answer to that previous question more of a an agreement than anything else genre being aware of genre being aware of especially if you're reading historical texts being aware of the context in which they were written i think really does help your understanding massively of exactly what's going on um and kind of just the atmosphere in which things were written um and since having said that was the last question we've actually had one more come through um so we have, I'm going to be very rude and just quickly get that one in there. Um, Tim Smith is asking whether Dr. Cook has worked with Dr. Christine Hayes. Uh, and if so, what he thinks of her lectures. Mm. Yes, she's a, a, an excellent lecturer at Yale and she's got, uh, she's on YouTube. So you can really take her course on the Hebrew Bible through YouTube. I have met her, but I haven't worked with her closely. I, I'd love to, but um, I guess right now we're all sort of... <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> working on the internet. Working on the internet <laughs> for the foreseeable future. We're all learning to Zoom and Skype and use Crowdcast. And it's, uh, it's a learning curve for many. Um, but uh, yeah, I think in general, what you find in academia nowadays is kind of either a very conservative approach or a very historically critical analytical approach. And it's kind of hard to find a a middle way between all of that. So I like listening to everything, but I take it all with a grain of salt. Mm. (laughs) It's a, you're, you're bound to never get the whole truth from any one professor. And that's, I think what makes this uh, such a a lifelong journey is, uh, you know, being, if, if we could answer all the the questions right up front, we'd all be out of jobs, I would imagine. So, um, well, I wanted to thank you, Dr. Cook, for taking the time uh, to come on and to speak with us today. Um, and really, thanks to all of you who are listening in the audience um, for participating in the discussion with your questions and your comments. 
Uh, please uh, be sure to like the video and subscribe to our channel and go down in the uh, video description and check out um, Dr. Cook's website. And is your blog on that linked on the website as well? Yeah. Beautiful. And uh, Facebook page and YouTube channel. <laughs> go in there, everybody, and subscribe. <laughs> And buy those books. I I, I, I mean it. I mean it. Uh, because He's going to be checking up on yeah, you later. Because yeah. there, there's also another book that um, that came out recently on Old Testament slavery. I can't remember the author's name, though. But uh, <laughs> Handsome Devil. Was, uh, it as I, was it me? It might have been me that wrote. Yeah, maybe it was me. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so... But uh, thank you so much for coming on. And Thanks for having me. No, it's, thank it was, you very much. It's a real pleasure. Well, thank you, everyone. And until next time, resist poor scholarship. Always Whoa. ask, how do you know that? <laughs> Bye, everybody.